Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We evolved as communities. We didn't evolve as networkers. There was the concept of uh, meeting people was a rare occurrence because we lived in these tribal groups for a majority of our early stage as a species. So, and what made the community work was that there was joint activity. And so when you look back at the people that you bonded with the fastest, it was probably because you had something to overcome together that you had to work together for. And so when I try to get people to bond, I try to find a challenge or a task that they can work on together uh, because that creates a faster bonding. There are two kind of characteristics around this. One is that you know that if I do you a favor, you're going to like me more. The funny thing is that if I do you a favor, I'm also going to like I'm also going to like you more. Because anything that I put effort and energy into, I begin to value disproportionately. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. John, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm super excited. Uh, I I think it's really funny that I had this random uh, opportunity to actually meet you in person uh, a couple of days ago. So this is an extra nice treat now to get to hang out with you again. Yeah, no, it's, it's very cool. And, you know, I, having met you in person, I think it just informs, you know, so many of my, my questions even more and having read the book, you know, so we had you back here um, about a year or two ago um, when I, I first learned about your work that you do with the Influencers Dinner. And, you know, I knew that you had a book coming out. Funny enough, an, another one of our listeners and a, a mutual friend emailed and said, have you had John? I said, yeah, we actually have. And then coincidentally, right after that, I got an email from you. Um, so before we dive into the book, um, I want to start by asking a question that I think is, is very appropriate given the nature of the book, given the nature of the work that you do. Um, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school and how did that end up impacting the choices that you have made with your life and your career? Wait, I was a part of a social group in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I do not remember that at all. I pretty much remember the, be- the being the geeky kid in the corner who uh, didn't hang out with anybody uh, besides a few other academics and nerds that had no other friends so it was mostly friendships based on being desperately lonely uh-huh. um, but if if you know something I don't uh, maybe I've blocked out a brief moment of popularity here and there uh, but I doubt it so tell me how, how sort of that um, you know I, I know you referenced this throughout the book like you alluded to it constantly in the book which is really interesting um, tell me how that kind of informed your perspective on human relationships and social behavior and the work that you do today well, I I didn't really have kind of the stereotypical experience growing up uh, that you see from TV shows because I was really into sci-fi and comic books. So I was like that group relegated to the side of the of, of the culture. Mm-hmm. I was uh, building tone dialers to get free phone calls and uh, doing. Uh, was it credit card generators to go away with like kind of crazy hacking scams and stuff like that. Um, but what I lacked in social skills, I made up for in my love of science. And I figured that if I could understand what causes people to connect with each other from a social science perspective, if I could become masterful at that, maybe I could live a fun, exciting life with people who liked me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, started this kind of like lifelong quest to figuring out how to create community, figuring out how to bring people together. And uh, as part of that, I ended up creating the Influencers, which is this private community of thought leaders. And uh, partially out of that and out of world travel and meeting people, I also wrote the 2AM principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I like to joke around and say that I... My favorite professor really inspired me. Uh, his name is Henry Walton Jones Jr. Do you know him? No, I don't. Uh, you probably know his work from the Temple of Doom mm-hmm. and uh, the red rating the Lost Ark mm-hmm. uh, because his nickname is Indiana Jones. Okay. So uh, he served as this academic that lived this very adventurous life. And I was like, how do I recreate that? <laughs> or how do I live a life like Ferris Bueller? Uh-huh. And so uh, that kind of became my goal. 
You know, it's really interesting because you know a lot of people who are, are sort of you know social outliers or almost outcasts or you know people. You know, the way you described it to me, you know, when you said that, I, I was thinking freaks and geeks almost immediately. Um, the north sort mm-hmm. of normal reaction isn't let me figure out you know what makes people connect and create this extraordinary social life, which I, I know you have just having spent uh, you know one night um, with something that, you know in in the presence of people that you brought together. Um, so I, I'm curious why you think certain people react that way to uh, a situation like the one you were in, and why other people don't. Like why did you turn that into something incredibly powerful? Um, I think that there's a myriad of of reasons. I think part of it's just pure luck, right? Like you read the right book right before it and it inspires you to be uh, more resilient and have more grit. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's the mythos of a culture, right? The cultural mythology that defines the values that we have. And so if you're hearing constantly stories about people overcoming adversity and taking on the challenges of life, then you're going to, I'd assume, be more likely to do that yourself. I think that uh, my parents also set a pretty awesome example. Uh, my fa- father grew up incredibly poor, one of uh, 12 children, and uh, he had a <laughs> he had a, a police record since the age of eight. He was like on the <laughs> criminal path, uh, but turned turned his life around. He stole a chicken and got caught or something ridiculous like that. Um, kind of Aladdin-esque, if you will. And he... Uh, and he really believed that, and he's an artist, right? Right. So he went into a craft that's that nobody succeeds in, and managed to support a family or kids and provide a wonderful style for us. And uh, I think they set an example of like, you don't quit, you figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I, when I realized how unpopular I was, it was heartbreaking. Uh, but there's so many options and so many ways to handle things. Uh, the problem is that when you're in, you know, eighth grade or whatever it is, your entire world is school. Mm-hmm. You have no concept that it, things actually get better, that there's a bigger world out there. You have that in television or mm-hmm. books and comic books. Uh, so it was much harder because it's not like I could just make new friends. There are no secondary social circles. I can't go to a meetup at the age of eight Mm -hmm. to meet people who are like-minded. But now, luckily, there's an entire culture that being a geek is cool, Mm -hmm. that we're the ones that are defining society, that we're building billion-dollar companies, that, you know, Comic-Con has this huge culture and everybody from the mainstream wants in on it. Mm -hmm. So how do we actually do this? What's the... What is the the way that we're... uh, creating and connecting people. And that's, that fascinates me. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. Um, do you have any contact with people that, uh, you actually went to high school with who kind of know what you're up to now and what is their impression of all of this? Um, I'm really fortunate that there's a couple of people that I still talk to. Uh-huh. Uh, first of all, everybody from high school is super nice. Uh, there, there's no like, you know, the kids that were like jerks and stuff like that. <laughs> you, you, you grow out of it, right? Yeah. You, you can't, you can't be a bully all your life. Uh, so when I do bump into people, it's pretty friendly. Uh, and I have this friend who's a really famous um, voice actress. She's on like all the big cartoons, like Adventure Time, and a bunch of stuff on Nick. And uh, it's just kind of funny because I'll come in LA to host one of my dinners and uh, she'll come for one of my salons after and it's like no time passes. It's just we love being around each other. Now, we uh, we rekindled our friendship in adulthood because in high school we didn't hang out with each other. She was part of the cool crowd, and I definitely wasn't. Uh, but now it's uh, just great to have at least some kind of shared history with somebody that and some nostalgic elements. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think that um, being in the situation that you are in high school uh, results in this almost sort of extreme desire to understand how to to connect with people and create this on another level? Because you know, like there are some people who aren't you know necessarily geeks in high school, um, and they weren't popular either. But you know, the, the sort of standard reaction isn't you know what I'm going to take it to a whole other level in terms of of building this extraordinary sort of social life. 
Um, I think I should add one more piece of information, yeah, which sure. is I'm, I'm dyslexic. Yeah. And uh, dyslexics don't process information in the same way. In fact, increases their chances of having certain emotional problems, ending up in prison, so on and so forth. Uh, because it's really tough for us to tackle uh, specific academic tasks. Like I was, I think, the last kid in my class to learn to read. Uh, but if you can get over it, you have to, de- and to get over it, you'll need to develop a unique set of skills. Mm-hmm. So if you do get over it, um, you have these skills that nobody else has. And as a byproduct, you have the, the potential to be significantly uh, more successful. Or uh, I, I think as a byproduct of my dyslexia, I had to learn to model the world and figure out systems so that I could get through it because I didn't have the option to read things in, at the same speed that everybody else did. So I'd memorize almost everything I read. Um, or I would, uh, develop a system for understanding how to, uh, connect information that otherwise people wouldn't notice. And as a byproduct, I was able to keep up with the other kids, but I just had these different skill sets. So when I, applied those skill sets to trying to fit in, I started building these models for understanding how people behaved. And as a byproduct, I kind of unlocked this code around living an adventurous life. I figured out there are these stages, and each stage has specific characteristics that when you apply them, makes life exciting. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part of it is that I was raised to have a bit of grit by my parents. And then part of it is that I also view things through a scientific lens mm-hmm. and through these models. And that's a byproduct of the dyslexia to some degree. And then third is that I really, <laughs> like I had no choice. It was sink or swim. Mm-hmm. Either I was going to be relegated to be lonely or I was going to figure this out. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into the, the entire model because I, I was just so blown away by it. Um, as, as I read the book, it was just like, wow, this is, this is mind-blowingly cool. But um, I want to ask you, you know, one other Thanks, question, question about this. Yeah. You know, it, it seems that you know, just from reading the book, from the, the, the handful of interactions that I've had with you, um, you know, previous episode on the podcast, even meeting you in New York once and also at, at the, the salon, it, you know, it seems like you've become this very keen observa- uh, observer and scientist of human behavior. And I am wondering how people can develop that in themselves. Like, how do you develop that awareness or that ability to notice and and really kind of develop models of human behavior from your own life? Um, So I think the question uh, begins with an information gap, Mm -hmm. right? So information gap is there's a gap between what you know and what you're being presented with. So ask yourself the question, right? Um, uh, what's something that you're curious about in our society? We, the two of us recently were, were hanging out with, with uh, Peter McGraw, who uh, developed what's called uh, benign violation theory. Right? Benign violation theory explains why something is funny. Uh, and he's at the forefront. He, worked, he has a laboratory called Hurl, the Humor Research Laboratory. And there was a gap in his knowledge. He didn't understand how... Uh, a traditional violation, right? So like uh, if I were to, uh, if somebody were to assault somebody else, that's a violation. Uh, why a, a verbal violation could be seen as funny. And he ends up developing this whole model uh, out of it. So it be, uh, and it seems to really hold up and work and explains why certain things are funny and certain things aren't. And the basic theory is that if something violates the way that things should be and simultaneously it's not dangerous or not offensive then it is both a violation and it's benign so if you look at a pun a pun violates the way that words should be used but they're but it's not dangerous in any way it's not offensive uh if you look at tickling it's a violation it 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 is an attack into your personal space but uh it's not a, uh, but it's not dangerous in any way. So we, you have to begin by looking at some kind of problem or question, right? Uh, what is it? Uh, so pick something. 
uh, that you are curious about socially, and then maybe we can begin to develop a model and test it. Okay. Um, what causes women and men to be attracted to each other? All right. Great. Well, there's a lot of information in that one, right? Mm. So, uh, and there's been everything from pickup artists to biologists who've developed models for understanding it. Uh, let's take it a, a step a little uh, lower. Like, okay. Like, what I, uh, because that one has so many complexities. I've been dealing with uh, fun, okay. right? What's a model for fun? I don't understand fun. Uh-huh. And that's like an honest statement. People talk about having fun. I don't know what that means. I know what being in awe is. I know what being angry is. Right? You can. It's very clear. Fun doesn't seem to be something. Fun seems to be something that you describe in retrospect. Uh-huh. Like, what did you do today? Oh, I had some fun with my friends. But what actually makes fun? How can we create it at any moment? Uh, good question. I don't know. Like, like you said, I, I only think about it in retrospect. I mean, it depends on, you know, I mean, for me, physical activity, like, you know, surfing and snowboarding, like those are always days that are fun and they're more fun when I get to do them with friends. Great. So now let me ask you a few questions about it. Yeah. If what about it is fun? Well, I like the fact that, um, they produce these incredibly both sports and, and, you know, for me in particular produce these incredibly deep states of like flow, um, and just getting into this zone, even though I'm physically exhausted by the end of it. Um, there's, you know, all these elements of risk involved, there's elements of, of danger involved, I guess, you know, in some cases. Um, but it just makes you feel physically, uh, physically and mentally, it, it makes you feel just this overwhelming sense of joy almost. Awesome. So here's here's what we begin to see, at least for me. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure this out. What you're talking about is being in flow or being engaged. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So like, uh, and for those listeners who, who don't know the concept of flow, uh, research by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi uh, interviewed across the board top performers in every industry. He wanted to understand what peak human performance is. And overwhelmingly, they described the state where they were perfectly intertwined with their activity, where they didn't know where the activity ended and they began. They lost all sense of self-consciousness in the process. And uh, there was this strange relationship to time. Things that took hours may have felt like seconds had passed or minutes. And things that take fractions of seconds, felt elongated so that a dancer going into a spin could see every face in the audience. Now, to enter flow state, there's a series of characteristics that need to be hit, not the least of which is you have to be doing something that requires skill. Mm -hmm. You have to be doing something outside of your comfort zone because if it's too familiar, it's boring. But it can't be so hard that you're constantly failing. And the activity has to give you immediate feedback. So you can't be constantly wondering how you're doing. The activity itself intrinsically lets you know. And so um, this state of flow is what you refer to as fun, it seems. Mm -hmm. Now, then does fun exist or does flow exist? And are they synonymous? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I mean, so the funny thing is, I, I guess, you know, I get I get flow from, you know, days when I'm writing and, and kind of really in the zone, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe that as fun because that's that's work related stuff. Whereas, you know, I get the same sort of thrill from um, surfing, but that to me is fun. Got it. So, and this is, now you're beginning to, I think, kind of see how I approach these problems. Yeah, yeah I am. It's, it's about kind of taking a concept mm-hmm. and then breaking it down to understand what's at the root of it. Mm-hmm. And then I interview a whole lot of people to understand their perspective on it and begin to try to, you know, break down the edges of it so that we can figure out what's at the core of it. So... <clears throat> Do you enjoy your writing? Yeah, I do. And but it's still not fun for you. Well, it, it you know it, it's a part of what I do for my work, you know, as as an author. So uh, yeah, I don't know that I would label it as fun. Got it. So I want I'm, this is just interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, from the perspective that it it sounds like what loses the fun is the obligation for you. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So if you were required to surf every day, uh-huh. do you think it would cease to be fun? Possibly, yeah. So there's an element of obligation or free will that might occur here. I mean, you have free will regardless, right? Yeah. You just should not show up to your desk <laughs> right. and not write. Exactly. But there's a lack of obligation. So maybe now we've seen something. Now we have to go and speak to a whole slew of people and see what else is said about it and so on. And maybe we might discover what fun is. Now... I I think it's a, a complex thing because my hunch is that we've all defined, we have this invented definition of fun. Uh-huh. Uh, it's clearly enjoyable. There's like all these characteristics, but uh, I had to deal with the same issue when I was looking at adventure. Yeah. Right. And if you look at adventure in the dictionary, there's these varying definitions that really tell you anything that it's like a, a journey, a voyage, a, uh, something that possessed peril, whatever it was. And so I had to actually invent my own definition so that we could have a common conversation about something. Otherwise, we're all talking about something else. Uh, and so as I defined an adventure, it is an experience that is, one, exciting and remarkable. 
Now it's critical that it's remarkable because as a species, we spent millennia passing down knowledge through oral history. And so if it's not worth talking about, it's not culturally relevant, right? It's not relevant to us as a society if people don't discuss it. It's the same thing like when somebody starts a company. Mm -hmm. uh, if the product isn't remarkable, it's not going to be that successful. If it's not worth talking about, it's not a great consumer product. You know, people always use the example of Apple. Apple traditionally made remarkable products. And Steve Jobs always used to use that, oh, one more thing, right? Uh, to be like, oh, <laughs> and there's this, and it's that thing that blows you away. So it's an experience that is exciting and remarkable. Two, it must possess adversity and or risk. But here's the important thing, preferably perceived risk. So I've, I learned the difference between the two mm -hmm. uh, in a very tough way. I went to, I've done a lot of things that have perceived risk, like uh, talking to strangers or public speaking, skydiving, bungee jumping, whatever you can imagine, right? Uh, but I've also gotten crushed by a bull and almost died in Pamplona during running of the bulls. And so there's, although your body, sorry, your brain reacts differently to an immediate threat than to a imagined or perceived one, the, uh, the way that our body reacts is incredibly similar. And as a byproduct, you can have that same sense of overcoming an obstacle or a challenge without putting yourself in an immediate danger. Right? Talking to a stranger and uh, climbing Everest can both be scary for an individual, but one of them has a very high chance of killing you. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And then the third characteristic is it brings about growth. The person you are at the end is distinct from the person who started. Now, if you look at any great hero or heroine's journey, they are fundamentally changed from the experience. They are different at the end than the person that began. And so the true gift of adventure is actually the characteristic of growth. Mm -hmm. The memories of the and the stories will fade over time. But those the growth that you experience will always be there. You carry it with you. You are forever changed. And that's why I love adventure so much. It's a, it's ultimately a catalyst for becoming a better person, one with an expanded skill set and comfort zone. Yeah. So <clears throat> there are a lot of questions I have about the entire behavioral model, um, and I want to get into it in uh, quite a bit of detail. But before we do that, I know that one of the things that you mentioned um, in the book uh, was that you actually spent time volunteering in the Israeli military. And I'm curious what that taught you about physical limitation and mindset. Because I know the Israeli military is one of the most sort of elite training, uh, you know, operations in the world. Yes. Uh, and I tip my hat to the, the soldiers who uh, go through, especially into those elite units. I actually did a, a program for outsiders to learn about the military. It was two months so it was basic training. I was a soldier. I was not property of the military the way that um, traditional soldiers are. Uh, and it was incredible. I, I'd actually point to something a little bit uh, earlier in my youth. Mm -hmm. When when I was in high school, I, uh, I think I was probably about 15 at the time, um, maybe even younger. Uh, I threw a party in my house. And uh, during the party, two different gangs from the area ended up showing up and fighting. A gun was pulled out. I was <laughs> convinced I was going to die that night. And it was a total mess. Uh, and I was so scared for days. I was getting threats from people. Luckily, the cops came and like broke it up. I was getting threats, and I didn't want to live that scared anymore. And so when I was, I guess I was probably 15 or so, I school had this really kind of crazy fitness program. 
by today's standards, I'd be surprised if it was even legal. Uh, <laughs> it was taught by a former Olympian named Radomir Kovacevic. Uh, I think he was probably like 6'8". He competed in judo and medaled. Um, and he would do these things called Radomir's workouts. And it was uh, kids that were ranged from like Olympic hopeful or Team USA hopefuls and things like that in swimming and basketball and so on. One of the kids even ended up with a multi-page spread in Sports Illustrated all the way through to like delinquents that you know, were being rehabilitated through his uh, Radomir's program. And then there was me. And essentially Radomir's training was weight training with exercises and games, but it wasn't designed just to um, to work you out. It was essentially designed to find your breaking point. <laughs> and And so he would do crazy things ranging from like take a massive wooden log and you would have to run around with it uh, on your shoulders, throwing it from side to side, uh, doing squats and or there'd be like three teams uh, with a ball and you were literally fighting over a medicine ball. Like it was just utter craziness. I remember one time he had us come in and he just set up benches all around the gym and he said, okay, uh, put one leg onto the bench, step up and step down. And again, and he said, uh, continue till I come back. I think he came back like an hour later. <laughs> and so for an hour straight, people were literally just stepping up and stepping down from a bench. And I think he was just trying to see who was going to break first. And so uh, if anything taught me uh, kind of to push the limits or push past the pain, mm -hmm. it was doing this three times a week with Radomir. I mean, the, the, I remember he would walk around with a big wooden stick and sometimes even hit kids um, who are uh, not working out too hard or hard enough. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, it's, it was kind of a trippy experience to say the, the least. Um, and so by the time I got to the, the basic training, I, it, it was kind of a, not a, it would by no stretch of the imagination a breeze, but I was used to the idea that, okay, I'm just going to be in pain now. And yeah. that's it. You know, I'm in pain. Uh, and that really actually came in, uh, became quite useful when I was in, uh, and when I came back from uh, Pamplona, from running of the bulls, I'd been crushed by a bull. And so it took six months of physical therapy. But what happened was that my muscles had been literally crushed and uh, they had adhesions had developed that were so big that I couldn't really move my shoulders anymore. And so it was probably the most painful therapeutic experience of my life. And it lasted six months. Wow. Yeah. So I want to start doing a deep dive into to sort of the entire sort of concept of the 2AM principle. And I want to look at it through two lenses. One is connection and the other is adventure. You know, when I, I had asked you uh, at the, uh, the salon on Saturday night, I said, what is it that leads to your ability to put together so many interesting people in a room? And you said there's a behavioral model and you said I could ask you about it. Um, so I'm mm -hmm. curious, you know, what is the behavioral model and how do you, you know, what, what causes connection to occur between people? So I think the first thing that we want to look at in terms of just connection mm -hmm. is that we evolved as communities. We didn't evolve as networkers. There was the concept of uh, meeting people was a rare occurrence because we lived in these tribal groups for a majority of our early stage as a species. So, and what made the community work was that there was joint activity. And so when you look back at the people that you bonded with the fastest, it was probably because you had something to overcome together that you had to work together for. And so when I try to get people to bond, I try to find a challenge or a task they can work on together uh, because that creates a faster bonding. There are two kind of characteristics around this. One is that you know that if I do you a favor, you're going to like me more. 
the funny thing is that if I do you a favor, I'm also going to like I'm also going to like you more because anything that I put effort and energy into, I begin to value disproportionately. So uh, there are two versions of this. One is called the Ben Franklin effect, which is based on favors. The other is just called the Ikea effect, which is that we disproportionately like our Ikea furniture because we had to assemble it ourselves. And so we put in effort. We like it more. Mm. So that's one side. Uh, so that's why all of my activities have a interactive uh, element to it. Uh, the other is that I really focus on a few things. One is uh, I'm not asking in general anyone for anything. Uh, it begins out of generosity. And I think that that's a really easy way to bond. Mm-hmm. Um, if people aren't concerned that you're after something of theirs, especially with high level contacts, then it makes it much, much, much easier to build trust. The other is that I focus on doing something that's really novel and different, something that will stand out and be memorable. And so uh, I think the key is in it, it in that it triggers your brain to create stronger memories when something stands out. And so whatever I do, I try to have a very strong novel factor for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also focus on curating very effectively. So because if you're the CEO of a major company, then, you know, and, and you're mostly surrounded by employees. I want to find people that are at your level, but in different industries. So um, let's look at Olympic medalists, Nobel laureates, so on and so forth. Like these people are best in class, but in something that you can't compete in. So there's no competition between one another. There's a mutual respect. So I really look at at providing those characteristics uh, and building around them. So that way uh, people can feel safe and bond with each other without feeling like anybody's after anything. Mm. Wow. Okay. That that was mind-blowingly cool. Um, well, let's let's do a <laughs> deep you. dive into the entire concept of the 2AM principle. I mean, you started touching on on sort of the framework, right? You know, ex, you know, uh, exciting and remarkable uh, component of risk. Um, so let's let's look at this through like a very practical lens for somebody who's listening to this. You know, like I looked at it and thought, okay, if I'm going out on a Friday night in the town that I live in, how do I take the ideas from the 2AM principle and make it one of the most interesting nights I've ever had? Because I think that Absolutely. way we frame it up as, as something much more practical. Sure. So the first stage of any adventure, I believe, is to establish and put the right elements in place. Uh, People think that adventures happen by chance, but if that were true, then we'd all have similarly exciting lives. And the fact (laughs) is that we don't like it. So that means that there's something that we're doing that um, or what some people are doing that creates an adventure or a higher chance for adventure. Now, the most important thing, I think, is surrounding yourself with the right people. You all know that uh, if you, the wrong group of people will make the best party in the world miserable. <laughs> but yeah. the right group can also turn around the worst party in the world and make it fun. Yeah. And so, uh, not that we know what fun is, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, then the second characteristic, uh, characteristic you want to put in place is you want to take a look at the location you're in. And the reason is that we briefly discussed that the brain responds to novelty. When something is new or different, uh, then we fundamentally uh, respond by having a desire to explore and understand. And so if you go to the same places you always go, you're just not going to have that same physical response. Now, uh, now this the next two characteristics that you want to establish are especially important if you're stuck in an environment that's very familiar. And those characteristics are you want to look at an underlying mission for your experience. So when I say that, I'm talking about some kind of goal that will drive your behavior as a group um, and will push you when you are uh, hitting a slump or will cause outsiders to bond and support you. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, it's nice to go out for drinks 
I mean, that's great, but that's not particularly exciting. It's nice to go out for drinks at four or five different places. So now you're adding a little bit of novelty. But now, what if you had this mission where you're going out for drinks, but you're not allowed to pay for any of your own drinks? Mm-hmm. Now you could go to the same bar you always go to, but it feels new in the sense that you have this mission that's pushing you outside of your comfort zone. You are doing something that is challenging to some degree. And if that's still too easy, then you can add the fourth characteristic that you want to set up ahead of time, and that is constraints. You want to limit your options to force you to be more creative. So you're going now to five different bars, and you have to convince people to buy you all your drinks. But here are the constraints. One is uh, you're not allowed to talk to anybody that you already know. (laughs) And two, uh, you can't explain that you're trying to get your drinks for free. Yeah. So now it's getting much, much harder. And all of a sudden you have this challenge in place and this game that will push you outside of your comfort zone and make life a lot more interesting. Now you may fail or succeed. I've done stupid stuff like try to convince a stranger to uh, give me their underwear. And I've done (laughs) stuff where I dropped myself off in a foreign country where I didn't speak the language, didn't know anybody, didn't have a place to sleep. And either I would convince a stranger to put me up for the night or I'd sleep on the street. Uh I've done that in multiple places. Yeah. But the whole key is that, you know, if you spend one night in a year sleeping on the street, whatever, <laughs> like, just means you won't be well rested. It's pretty safe. Yeah. Uh, but if you, um, but it will be remarkable and it will be potentially a really great story and it will force you to grow, which brings me to the second stage of adventure. Stage two is push boundaries. You want to cross some kind of social, physical or emotional boundary. Now, the reason that it's so important to do that is that you have to grow from your experiences in order for them to be adventures. And you can do that either by crossing a social boundary, like uh, uh, walking up to strangers and talking to them, or uh, it's mostly accepted. Or a social boundary could be uh, dressing up in a, a uh, diaper and going to a nightclub, right? Like these. <laughs> The, the choice is yours. I mean, I don't think I'd ever end up in a diaper in a nightclub, but <laughs> maybe in my when I hit like 110 and I need a diaper, then <laughs> possibly. Yeah. And then, uh, or it could be a physical boundary like climbing a mountain or uh, crossing over some do not entry line, or maybe it's a uh, emotional boundary like you're really scared to do something like go bungee jumping. That one's also physical, but it's also emotional. So the key, though, is to be outside of your comfort zone. Not so much that you're terrified, but enough that you're excited. Mm -hmm. Then the next stage is increase. You want to maximize the emotional value from the environment that you're in. You don't want to leave until you've kind of gotten all the juice out of the environment, or at least all the juice worth getting. Um, And so... You can do that by entertaining people, creating challenges, and so on and so forth. And then the final stage is continue. So in continue, you consider the risk and unpredictability of the next place, the activity and the Mm ambiance, the transportation necessary to get there. Because if you are um, wearing heels, then you can only walk so far. If it's raining, you don't want to necessarily get wet. So there are all these options. And then it's critical that you end with style. So uh, I call it the continuation rate, risk, activity, transportation, end with style. And if you are continuing on somewhere, you let loop back through the process. If you aren't, then it's critical that you end with style. And the reason is that human beings don't process the duration of pleasure or pain. They process the experience of the peaks and how things end. And so I'll give you an example. Um, If you go out on the most perfect date of your life, and in the last moments you're about to lean in for the kiss, but just as you do, the person looks you in the eyes and says the most 
awful thing you have ever heard in your life. When you go home and people ask you, how was your date? Would you say good date or bad date? Bad date, for sure. Exactly. Because the end is so critical. I've spent far, far, far too many nights of my life at 4 a.m. at a pizza place trying to convince myself that the night's still going to be great. (laughs) But it's all BS. It's Uh. just... End with style, and then you'll remember the experience more positively. You'll be better rested the next day. Yeah. You'll be less regretful. You'll be more likely to to enjoy what you have. Uh, and you're just better off in general. So you got to learn when to call it. And that's one of the most critical aspects of an adventure. So the four stages are establish, push boundaries, increase, continue, or EPIC. So I call it the epic model for adventure and the book is called the 2am principle because nothing good happens after 2am <laughs> except the most epic experiences of your life wow okay very very cool um so two two, two other questions come from this one is the sort of social boundaries piece because i know you mentioned you know so pushing social boundaries and being mindful of the fact that wait a minute if you live in a neighborhood you don't want to violate social boundaries so often that you're seen as this outcast in the town that you live in um but you know that's just an observation more than anything else the question around social boundaries is is you know people you know, a lot of people have social anxiety about sort of interacting with other people and, and i'm wondering you know what your um, what your advice is for that aspect of this? Oh, so if you're <laughs> the the stuff you need to worry about is if you're being like a jerk, for example, <laughs> right. or or uh, you know your social boundaries are that you don't wash, and so you're <laughs> you're like, oh, what do I need to shower for? That's the kind of stuff that'll make you a social outcast. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, there is. Almost nothing you could do when interacting with a stranger uh-huh. that really matters because chances are you're never going to see them again. So if you like go and hit on a stranger or talk or try to tell a story and it flops, mm-hmm. there's a thousand other strangers nearby. Now, you might feel like a complete jerk, but that's kind of part of the growth process. Remember how awkward high school was? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's because everything was risky and screwing up and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so uh, here's a few things I can tell you. Yeah. Um, one is that uh, that we disproportionately think that whatever is at the center of our attention um, is common. Actually, let me, can I repeat that? Yeah, in a different absolutely. Way? Okay. All right. So here's something really important. When Dan Kahneman, the legendary Nobel laureate, who actually developed the peak end rule, uh, was asked if there's one idea that could change the way that we perceive our place and society and so on that could have the greatest impact. And I'm paraphrasing here and not saying it perfectly. Um, he described a phenomenon that whatever is at the center of our attention, we think is much more common than it is. So if we hear about a car accident on, in a newspaper, we think car accidents are incredibly common. Or if we see a hurricane, we think hurricanes are incredibly common. It also means that we disproportionately uh, think that anything that we're doing is important. So if I'm talking to you and we, I screwed up this podcast and I felt like such a jerk and you recorded me saying something stupid, uh, I'll have this impression that every podcast out there is going to hate me. Nobody's going to want to talk to me again and so on and so forth. But the fact is that people don't talk that much, that there's thousands and thousands of podcasters out there that I can I can have the freedom to screw up once and it'll rarely ever have a major impact on me. Mm-hmm. And so if I go out there and I talk to a stranger and I am really awkward, it happens. The key is to learn from it and then go and do it again. And if you're awkward that time, great, go and do it again. Chances are there aren't in, there are so many people wherever you live that it won't make any difference and you can learn to develop these skill sets without actually having a major negative impact on your life. Mm. Now, here's one thing I'll say. It doesn't mean that it 
doesn't feel awkward or uncomfortable. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you don't feel stupid. It just means that there's a supply of opportunities to feel stupid. <laughs> wow. Okay, so I have two last questions for you. I know you've got to get going, so I want to be mindful of your time. Um, being a huge 24 fan, when I came across the section of your book where you talked about <laughs> partying with Jack Bauer, I was like, you got to tell us a story about how you ended up partying with Jack Bauer and ending up at Kiefer Sutherland's Thanksgiving. Uh, so uh, I actually uh, hung out with him on two different occasions, and this was years ago, uh, but it was such a ridiculous scenario. Uh so I'm going to tell the second story because I think it's more relevant. I'm uh, I'm sitting at home and I get this text from my brother who lives in San Francisco. Uh, and he says, uh, hey, meet me for a drink. Um, I'm at a hotel in Midtown. And I tell him, sure, I'll meet you. But there's no way that it's just going to be one drink. I don't believe anybody ever has one drink and, and you know, goes to bed. So he goes, no, 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 I have a. 6 a.m. flight. I have to head out to the airport at 3 a.m. Believe me, I'm, I'm going to only have one drink. So one drink turns into three drinks. Three drinks turns into bar hopping. Bar hopping turns into us thinking it would be a good idea to go to a nightclub for some reason on like a Wednesday night a week before Thanksgiving. And uh, as we're standing in line for the nightclub, I see this guy just like go into a, a diner bar across the street and so I grab my brother and I go, listen, play along. And we go into the diner bar and uh, I lean my head in and the, the guy who works, I go, sorry, we're closed. And I go, oh, Kiefer, is that you? I haven't seen you since that time we hung out at the Spotted Pig. And he waves me in and he's sitting at the, at the counter, the bar. Uh, and it's him, his friend, me and my brother. And they're like, so what do you want to ha have? And I go, I'll, I'll have what he's having. And... Uh, and they pass me a bottle of Coke and a whiskey. And Kiefer says, do you know how to drink that? And I go, uh, no. He goes, I learned this from one of my dad's friends. You take a sip of whiskey, you take a sip of Coke, and I, the Coke will soothe the burning from the whiskey. I, you know, I'm soaking this moment in. I feel like my sensei is teaching me some wisdom passed down from generation to generation. <laughs> and uh, as I like soaking the moment in, the bartender uh, goes, listen, if you're going to be here after hours, you have to partake in our tradition. And he starts pulling something from behind the counter. And all I can think is, oh, my God, he's about to pull out like a mound of Coke. And I don't do drugs. And uh I, it's the only thing I could picture like after hours in a closed diner bar with a celebrity. Right. And what he pulled out was way worse. It was Jenga. <laughs> um, mind you, like everybody there was like four or five drinks in and Jenga is the most coordination requiring game humanity has ever created. And so we're there. It's this fierce battle. The like, the five or six of us that are there going like block for block. Now Kiefer pulls out his like Coke bottle, thick glasses and he's, you know, just like his coordination's absolutely incredible. And, uh, and we're just like now at this point, you know, six or seven drinks in it's two o'clock in the morning. The phrase we should buy an Island probably made an appearance at some point, which no, like at that point, everything's, uh, everything's downhill. We invited him to Thanksgiving. He invited us to Thanksgiving, like his passing around his glass. Like it's just absolute craziness by three o'clock in the morning. My brother's like, I have to get to the airport. So my brother, uh, and I jump in a cab. He drops me off. And uh, we say goodbye. We, we had exchanged numbers with everybody. The next morning I wake up. I'm still wearing my pants and shoes, but no shirt. <laughs> and I'm in bed with my shoes on. So, you know, it was an exciting night. And uh, I look down at the floor and there's something sparkling. And I realized that I had unintentionally stolen Kiefer's glasses. And I was freaking out, cringing. I'm like, you know, this is Jack Bauer here. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I'm, I guess now he's the president, actually. Yeah. <laughs> in his new show. Exactly. Really don't want to screw with him. <laughs> uh, so 
he uh, <laughs> so I text him but no answer obviously because I have his glasses he can't see anything and I yeah. message his agent and there's no answer um, and so now it's the Friday after Thanksgiving and I, uh, I'm with my entire family my brother's back in town and uh, I have Kiefer's glasses and I know where he's celebrating Thanksgiving and so me, my brother, a friend of ours, um, my brother's wife, and the girl I was dating all um, drove to the dinner location and just showed up. And, <laughs> and it was this intimate setting. It was like 16 people at a buffet. Uh -huh. And it was just his like, kids and best friends. And he, we walk in and he stares at me like, who are you? Right? Like there's this clear like lack of recognition. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, it's the silence is starting to get awkwardly long. And um, he's, you know, he's peering into my soul the way that Jack Bauer has towards <laughs> every terrorist out there. Uh, and I know that, like, this is either going to end absolutely terrible uh, or somehow I'm going to have to figure out some way to turn this around. And so I go, uh, Kiefer, thank you so much for inviting us. I was so good hanging out with you at this place. Um, I unintentionally stole your glasses and I wanted to return them. Uh, thanks for inviting us here tonight. And he stares at me and he stares at the glasses, stares at me. And uh, he goes, fortunately, I can afford to replace these. And I don't know if he's like, get the hell out of here or if he's like, just giving me a hard time. And he goes, smiles and he goes, come on, join us. And so we're sitting down, we're having, of course, some food and whiskey. And then his daughter says, we should play a game. And of course, as fate would have it, we sat there drinking whiskey and playing Jenga Jenga for the <laughs> next two hours. Uh, and he was the most gracious host and uh, uh, just a really good guy about the whole thing. And, very, very but, cool. You know, the, that's the nature of kind of surprises is that you have to, uh, you, if you're willing to embrace them, uh, Magic happens. Yeah. Well, and so he was a gentleman in the process. I think that makes I, a, a really sort of a fitting end to our conversation. So I have one last question for you, which is how we wrap all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, I think that it's a factor of novelty, that they are doing something that stands out of the norm enough that your brain triggers and realizes that they're deserving of their own category. Mm, I love that. Uh, one of my favorite definitions and answers to that question I've ever heard. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can't thank you enough for coming back uh, to the show for a second time. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Um, by the way, tell everybody where they can find out about the book. And, and for those of you who haven't picked up the book, you should buy it just for the design alone. The design is the most impeccable and beautiful thing I've ever seen. Thanks. Uh, well, the name of the book is The 2 a.m. Principle, Discover the Science of Adventure. You can find it at uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles. It's, there's an Audible version. There's an ebook version, literally any cop kind of version you want. Uh, you can find me, John Levy, as John Levy TLB, J-O-N. I don't have an H, so it's J-O-N-L-E-V-Y. T like Thomas, L like Lion, B like Boy. And you, I'm that on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, and uh, my website's johnlevytlb.com. And I'm awesome. pretty easy to get a hold of. Awesome. So uh, thanks so much for having me. This was a real treat. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.